Welcome to Move Forward Radio, a show featuring interviews with physical therapists and other healthcare experts. This program is brought to you by MoveForwardPT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Learn how physical therapists can help people of all ages and abilities reduce pain and improve and restore motion to achieve long-term quality of life at MoveForwardPT.com. Welcome to Move Forward Radio. I'm Jason Bellamy. Recently, Redbook Magazine asked several physical therapists to share the advice they give their friends. The physical therapists interviewed for the July 2015 article provided diverse answers, from encouraging children to try multiple sports, rather than specializing at a young age, to reminding women that a physical therapist can help them strengthen pelvic floor muscles to avoid problems like urinary incontinence. In this episode, we decided to follow Redbook's lead. Over the course of this episode, you'll hear from seven physical therapists about the advice they find themselves most commonly giving their friends or their patients, those things they wish everyone knew. Laura Stanley describes what treatment by a physical therapist entails. Eric Robertson clears up some myths about back pain. Andrea Vruskin shares advice for people held back by an injury. Aaron Kyle addresses a common question he gets about minimalist or barefoot running. Mike Eisenhart outlines the areas to focus on if you want to stay healthy. Chris Hines shares the advice he gives to older patients experiencing a physical decline. And Ann Wendell discusses misconceptions about access to a physical therapist. Up first is Laura Stanley of North Carolina, who never forgets to remind her friends about what makes treatment by a physical therapist so special. Here's Laura Stanley. And when I've been thinking about this, one of the main things that comes to mind is Sort of emphasizing the fact that as PTs, we are really movement specialists. We are people who have been trained to both diagnose different injuries and pathologies, as well as intervene and help people find ways to improve their quality of life through movement. One of the most unique things that we are able to provide as physical therapists is not only a very robust clinical diagnosis where we're able to identify implicated tissues or syndromes that are going on from a pathologic standpoint, but also finding really practical and strategic ways to intervene to correct any type of abnormal movement and integrate that into an individual's daily life, whether it be a work-related challenge that they're having, an athletic situation, or just anything that would be related to someone's everyday life, so activities of daily living that may be impacted by this condition that they are struggling with at the time. You know, in general, we think that we have a pretty good understanding of what would be an ideal movement pattern or an ideal posture for um, any given person. But one of the great things about what we're able to do in a physical therapy setting is really spend good one-on-one time with our patients and try to fine-tune where exactly an individual's problem may be stemming from. So the individualized plan that's specific to that individual is something that we take very seriously and we find really enhances and optimizes our both short-term and long-term outcomes with our patients. The physical therapist really becomes the patient's advocate. And so when you show up at your first PT visit, you know, the first day is typically a clinical evaluation where we go through an entire sequence of exam techniques to try to fine-tune exactly why you may be having the pain or the dysfunction that's limiting you in your everyday life. And then it really becomes an open dialogue and a process that is really hands-on and a team approach. You know, many people think that 
it may just walk into any type of healthcare provider's office and receive, you know, the golden ticket to whatever it is that they're doing. What's great about PT and often sometimes challenging for individuals is that it really is important that the patient buys into the process. So this may involve, you know, participation when you're actually in the clinic, but really one of the most important things is compliance and diligence and persistence with a home program that the therapist may prescribe. And again, I think the best outcomes usually occur when you do have that open dialogue of communication between the therapist and patient. You know, if things are going well, if there are things that need to be adjusted as you work through each session, as you work through a week's worth of sessions and moving forward um, throughout the plan of care. We move on now with Eric Robertson of Oakland, California, who discusses a condition that at any given moment affects roughly a quarter of the U.S. population. Here's Eric Robertson. I think one of the most important tips that everybody should just kind of know in general has to do with back pain. One of the evolving paradigms with back pain has to do with movement. In the past, when you had back pain, the thought was in generally that you could stabilize it and that would help it and it would help it go away. And part of that stabilization was that you should have bed rest. And so for years and years, people who had back pain were prescribed bed rest as a treatment. Well, our understanding of back pain and how you can manage it has evolved quite a bit. And so now that bed rest is persisting only as a bad myth. And the exact opposite is true. The more you move, the better your back is going to do. It's an interesting question about how much you should move because everyone's experience with back pain in terms of the pain intensity or location is going to be a little bit different. I think the thing to remember is that most back pain, even if it hurts quite a bit, is not serious by nature. It's helpful to understand some of those signs and symptoms that are serious. And if you have those, that would be your gauge to say, well, maybe I shouldn't move through this and maybe I should, you know, maybe rest or consult a health professional. And those symptoms are if you have numbness or tingling or profound muscle weakness in one of your muscles in your legs, for example, or if you had any numbness or tingling in the groin region, a place where we call the saddle, or if you had any trouble with urination or bowel and bladder function, those would be serious problems with back pain. But thankfully, they're not very common. So by and large, most back pain, even if it feels really uncomfortable, is something that's going to benefit from your continued motion and continued efforts to walk and to do your normal daily activities. When back pain doesn't resolve itself, it often leads to a trip to the doctor. And that trip to the doctor can lead to an imaging scan. As Eric describes, that imaging scan isn't always as telling as it seems. There's a lot of limitations with the imaging. Number one, it's costly. Number two, if you're getting something like a CT scan or a radiograph, there's a lot of radiation exposure that happens with those. But the worst part, perhaps, is that when you get an MRI, it's just a picture of something going on in your body. And it makes sense logically for us to connect what you see on that picture as the source of your pain. But thankfully, we have science, and science can kind of inform us that those pictures aren't necessarily strongly correlated with what's actually causing your pain or your experience of pain. What I mean by that is you can take an image of a random person, maybe a 55-year-old person's spine, and they may not have any back pain, but when you look at that image, you're likely to see bulging discs or some bone spurs or some degenerative changes, and so that person doesn't have any back pain. Now, if that person did have back pain and you decided at that point in time to take an image of their spine, then you see those changes. It would be very easy to prescribe or ascribe you know, those image findings to what their pain experience was, when in fact that's really not the case. 
that's one of the problems with overuse of imaging is because it makes those leaps to those, you know, pathoanatomical causes of back pain that, you know, makes sense kind of logically. Oh, the disc is bulging. That must be the source of the back pain. Those are sometimes, you know, just kind of normal parts of aging. Just like your skin wrinkles normally, you know, some researchers have even mentioned that there's some inside wrinkles too, and that's what you would see as the kind of that normal degenerative process. And the problem there is when you see those things, you're maybe more likely to take action or to, you know, have surgical procedures or invasive procedures or over-treat the back pain. And so what we see broadly in back pain care is that overuse of imaging or getting too many images too early in the back pain episode leads to over-treatment down the line from pharmaceuticals or surgeries or just overuse of invasive techniques. Our next PT is Andrea Vruskin of Las Vegas, Nevada, who often reminds her friends that even when an injury reaches the point that more motion isn't the answer, that doesn't mean we should stop moving. Here's Andrea Vruskin. I see a lot of people with injuries in the arms or the legs or the back, and one of the most essential things I try to help them understand is even though you're injured, never stop working out. Basically, work out around the injury. Even if they are getting treatment for that area, they should still ask their physical therapist to help them think how they can keep working out the rest of their body. So let's say they have a knee injury and maybe they can't walk very well and they feel like they can't do their regular jogging routine or biking routine. Well, there are many things that you can do with the upper body and with the core to keep those in shape so that when the knee is better, the rest of the body has not atrophied and become weak and tightened to the point where they can't just jump back into their favorite activity. Basically, you use it or lose it. And that goes for even uninjured parts of the body. If you stop stretching and strengthening parts of the body that are not injured, they will also lose their strength and lose the flexibility. You can also lose your overall aerobic endurance if you stop doing aerobic exercise. So, for instance, the example I gave before where if you have a knee injury, well, there's a machine called the upper body ergometer or UBE where you can actually do aerobic exercise on a bike for your arms. And it doesn't involve your knee, so you can do your therapy on your knee, and then you can go on the upper body ergometer and cycle with your arms and get a really good cardiovascular workout and keep up your aerobic endurance that way. The other important thing about keeping the ritual is the mental aspect of working out. Being active also improves your mood and will help you feel like you're more in control during an injury than if you just completely stop being active altogether. So finding creative ways to stay active and to keep working out around the injury will help you keep your mood elevated and help you avoid stress. It'll help you sleep better, and it will help you heal better and faster. Up next is Aaron Kyle of Chicago, who spent much of his career treating runners and now finds himself answering a common question. Here's Aaron Kyle. I have seen uh, quite a few runners over the years in my career, and um, of late have been seeing a lot of runners who are interested in learning more about the minimalist shoe and barefoot running movement that seems to be becoming pretty popular as time goes on. A common question that I get is, will this transition into a minimalist shoe or a different shoe than what I'm used to be good for me in regards to not having as many running-related injuries? And certainly we don't have a crystal ball. We can't say for sure that one thing will make your life completely better as a runner or not. But I can say empirically over the years that by and large, barring like a surgical issue that a runner has, 
or a significant health issue that a runner may have. The transition into minimalist shoe wear is actually a pretty good idea. And this is not from my own science or my own research. Irene Davis out of Harvard, who has focused on this for some time, is one of the leaders in the field on this and has uh, done a lot of really good research behind this. Brian Heiderscheid, another leader in this area, Chris Powers out of California. So I am just more or less repeating the research that they've done over the last several years, and there is good science behind it. In a nutshell, what the transition means and what it looks like for an everyday runner goes something like this. A runner who's been wearing a shoe that has a certain amount of support in the insole for years has typically been told that they have a low arch and that arch needs to be supported somehow synthetically with the shoe that they wear when they run. I told that to runners for a decade. And the shoe wear prescription is usually such that I look at the runner's foot, the structure of the arch, I take some measurements, and based on how bad the flat-footedness is, I quantify it somehow, and I make a recommendation for a traditional running shoe that has some arch support. A minimalist shoe is pretty much the opposite. The thought goes something like your foot and arch muscles have most likely become weakened over time because they've been supported too much. And if you think about us as North Americans, no one walks around barefoot anymore. The thought behind that is that because our foot is always protected, more or less, there's an inherent propensity for the foot muscles to become weaker and weaker and weaker over time. So they need to be made stronger. And the way you make them stronger is to take the support away, not give more support. The goal of the shoe isn't just to strengthen your foot muscles, it's to change how you run. If you were to take a classic running shoe off and run barefoot, there's a really good chance you would change your running style from a rear foot strike pattern to either a midfoot or forefoot strike pattern just because you would have to because you don't want your heel to hurt when you run barefoot. And a lot of the research has been around that, more so than the strengthening aspects of what the minimalist shoe wear provides. So a minimalist shoe, a classic description of a minimalist shoe is something that does not have an arch support of any kind. It's super flexible. It's super lightweight. It's as if you were putting a piece of something on the bottom of your skin just to protect your foot from the elements, and that's a classic minimalist shoe. And I would say for most people, regardless of their foot structure, regardless of their arch height, even super flat-feeted people, given the right exercises and given the right recipe for making the transition, can be successful in moving from a traditional running shoe into a minimalist shoe. Running is a great way to stay fit, but as Mike Eisenhardt of Lebanon, New Jersey is about to make clear, exercise is just one component of health and wellness. Here's Mike Eisenhardt. The thing I'd love to have everyone know and things I tell my friends all the time is that although 50% of the American population has at least one chronic disease, 80% of those chronic diseases are entirely preventable. So that we know with lifestyle, things like movement and rest and recovery, proper nutrition, the balance of stress, you can prevent disease. You can cure it. You can prevent it. You don't have to have a poor quality of life later in life, but unfortunately, so many Americans do. So whereas most of us will live to be 78.8, as per the latest studies, the last 10 years will be not nearly as good as it could be, and those are things that are entirely within our control. We sort of look at it like a financial planner might. They might talk to you and say, hey, uh, 
you know, when do you want to retire? What sort of assets do you have? And what's the lifestyle you want when you do? We look at it exactly the same way. How long do you want to live? What do you want your lifestyle to be like during those years? And what are your health assets? You know, where are you starting? Are you healthy? Do you have good healthy behaviors? Are you eating well? Are you eating only processed food and foods that you can, you know, sort of buy in the same place you buy your gasoline? Uh, if so, then we might want to start there. If it's more along the lines of, well, I work in a sedentary type environment and I'm sitting all day and then I'm so tired from sitting that I go home and sit and watch TV, then we might want to start there. And in many ways, we're looking at sleep and stress and kind of that stress recovery balance and how a person attacks their day. But we look at the whole scenario and then try to find the gaps and really talk to a person about where they can fill in those gaps reasonably. You know, most people are sort of okay and on board with the idea that, yeah, it's a lifestyle and I've got to change my lifestyle. They don't know where to begin. They don't know how many things they should tackle at once and what's reasonable success. So we start with the conversation. We talk about three major areas, move, fuel, recover. I mean, those are the three things that most people, unfortunately, understand, but they're not getting right. Move, I think exercise and activity is, in general, you know, sort of across the spectrum, we need more of it. I don't think anybody would argue with that. But what we typically find is that if a person is getting to that first step where they know they want to do something, they may be aware that they should do more, but what they really don't know is how to do it well or how to do it right. You know, with activity and movement, we're really talking about the dosage you know, exactly how much, at what intensity, how do we measure that, what's a reasonable, uh, you know, frequency, duration, and so forth. On the nutrition end, there's no question about it that that is a major gap and one that as a physical therapist I'm happy to play a role in and I'm excited that for, you know, all of our colleagues in the profession that we're going to be playing a larger role in that in the future. We need to be spending time there. It's something that we often, you know, it's easy to brush off, but we know that what you eat has a direct impact on how your body heals. And so we look at that and look at it closely. If there was one kind of pearl in the area of nutrition, we tend to spend a lot of time talking about the benefits of increasing plant consumption because that's a big gap for most folks, and that also ties back to fiber and a whole bunch of other sort of biochemical processes that happen as a result of it. But we look at a person's intake of basically fruits and vegetables as a starting point, and that's an easy one. We tend not to tell people what to avoid. I'm not a big believer in you shouldn't eat this, you shouldn't eat that. We all sort of get inundated with that. We try to tell them, well, this is what you should eat. You get a couple of these servings in. I can't tell you the number of times I've told somebody, take an apple and orange and a banana with you to work every single day. Eat it. Eat a salad with your dinner. Not instead of your dinner, with your dinner. And you've got your five servings. And then we talk a lot about sleep, about rest and recovery, and the fact that we need enough of it and we need a quality amount of it. So six hours is the bare minimum, so says the research. But if it's six hours and you're tossing and you're turning and you're in pain and you're getting up ten times a night or you're having some sort of a men or women's health issue and it's requiring you to go to the bathroom all the time, it's a big issue and it impacts your body's ability to thrive. Unfortunately, all of us won't prevent chronic disease and will experience health problems as we age. But as Chris Hines reminds his patients in Traverse City, Michigan, just because health problems begin doesn't mean they need to continue. Here's Chris Hines. One common theme that I see working with my patients, and sometimes this comes from the patient themselves or sometimes it comes from their family or caregiver, but that misconception is that when a person reaches a certain age and they start to lose some strength, they start to lose some balance, they start to decline in their abilities, that change is inevitable and that change will continue to happen throughout older age. And my primary goal in working with older adults is to try to address that misconception and help them understand that it doesn't matter your age, it doesn't matter how many disease processes you might have going on in your body. You can make improvements at any age with the right coaching and with the right help 
from the right medical professionals. And I think oftentimes a physical therapist is one of the key professionals to help intervene in addressing those common declines that we might see in older age, declining strength, declining balance. Those are things that physical therapists are experts at assessing and determining where the problem area lies and then coming up with a treatment plan to address those concerns. If you didn't feel that you could improve, you're not going to buy into what I'm selling. You're not going to want to put in the effort. You're not going to want to put in the time. You're going to just think that there's no hope. So that's probably the first thing that we need to address as physical therapists when we're working with patients who have these beliefs is, number one, you can improve. You can get better. It doesn't matter that you're 80, 90, even 100 years old. If you're willing to put in the effort and you're capable of doing so, you can make improvements. It starts with asking the question, what are your goals? What are you here for? What would you like to do better? And sometimes that's just having to ask them, dig in a little bit, ask about their family, ask about their grandchildren. You know, how old are your grandkids? Do you have great-grandkids? What do you like to do with them? What do you like to do on the weekends? What do you like to do in the evenings? What do you like to do with your spouse? And then try to find those things that really make them tick. Maybe what they come out with is, well, I really used to like doing this, but now I can't anymore. Well, why can't you anymore? Let's talk more about that. So trying to tie that back into exactly what their goals are, because chances are they don't really care if their muscle strength is four out of five. They don't care at all. They want to be able to get off the sofa. They want to be able to go up and down the stairs. They want to be able to get down on their hands and knees and crawl around and play with their grandkids. So those are the things that we need to tease out in the evaluation and find out where they need the most help. After listening to all these physical therapists, you might be eager to go see one. Our final guest, Ann Wendell of Alexandria, Virginia, wants to make sure you know just how easy that can be. Here's Ann Wendell. The thing that I usually find myself talking to people about at a party or out in the neighborhood is that patients have the right to and are able to access physical therapy directly through something called direct access, which means in all 50 states, you can go to a physical therapist prior to meeting with your physician. So let's say you're out running and you sprain your ankle or something like that, or you're shoveling snow and you hurt your back you can directly go to see a physical therapist. And we are trained in musculoskeletal evaluation and treatment. So we can do a thorough assessment to take a look at how you're moving, do an examination to figure out what might be going on, and then come up with a treatment plan by talking with you in order to help you reach your goals. Prior to even coming in for your evaluation for your first visit, most physical therapy clinics will check your benefits for you, or they will give you the tools that you need to call and have an informed discussion with your insurance company so that you can find out exactly what your benefits are and what your cost is going to be when you come in. And then what we do as physical therapists is work as a team with your physician and whoever else might be a part of your team, your personal trainer, your massage therapist, whoever is part of the team of people that takes care of you. So if we feel like there's a red flag or something that might need further diagnostic workup or things like that, we will definitely refer you back to your physician of choice. Or we can refer you to a physician that we know and are comfortable working with if you don't have a physician, which is a situation that I run into with a lot of people who come to me through direct access. And we know from research studies that, especially for low back pain, early direct access to physical therapy is a time saver and a cost saver in the long run. So I would really like everyone to know that you can go see a physical therapist without having a referral from your physician in all 50 states. If you want to find a physical therapist in your area, you can use the Find a PT tool at MoveForwardPT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Thanks to our PT guests for this episode, Laura Stanley, Eric Robertson, 
Andrew of Ruskin, Aaron Kyle, Mike Eisenhart, Chris Hines, and Ann Wendell. You can learn more about each of them at our episode page at move4pt.com. I'm Jason Bellamy. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Move Forward Radio. Insight from our guest is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Learn more about how a physical therapist can help you and find a physical therapist in your area at moveforwardpt.com. For an archive of past episodes, visit moveforwardpt.com radio.